You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. So are you going to get your money back on that Toyota that you got? No. No, I'm not going to get my money back on my Toyota. I just have to replace it. It's a fuel pump issue. It's not a big deal. Oh, really? Yeah, well, it seems that's what like I'm hoping. Deal. It seemed like hoping. a big deal when we were stuck in the rain trying to push you off the side of the road. I do I do appreciate you coming to my rescue. It's yeah. It always, it, you know, it never fails. When you buy an old car like that, you know, there's some it, reason like somebody's selling. What? It's what, a 72? A 70, yeah, 73. Uh, so it's almost 50 years old. 73 what? What is it? It's a 73 Toyota Land Cruiser FJ40. Uh, it's been fully restored, but it's, it's one of those things that it was undercover in storage. Uh, it's in great condition, but just hadn't been running in a while. So I got to find out what didn't work the hard way in the freezing uh, grade, the uh, fuel pump went out. (laughs) So yeah, that was pretty brutal. That was, that was brutal. brutal. So I had my, my first car that, uh, I got when I was 16. It was a 68 Scout piece of junk. And it just, it was a $900 car at the time. And I wish I had that car now. It'd be worth much more. But I remember my, uh, my driving experience in this car. It was such a piece of junk that when you would go down the, the highway or go down the road, if you hit a hole or a bump or something, just all the electronics would go out. Uh, which is just the, the headlights. And so I would try and hit another pothole and knock them back on. <laughs> oh man. That's <laughs> and it had it had holes it had holes in the floorboard that you could actually see the street go by as you're driving. So I've had however bad a car you think you've had, uh, this this one was worse. No, it sounds sounds pretty bad. Was that what the the old like um mailman truck that you used yeah yeah the, the steering wheel was on the right hand side it was right 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 hand drive so i have to i would back through the uh drive throughs oh, that's <laughs> back funny. through it was challenging. that's funny it was i think funny. that you you really haven't lived unless you've uh unless your first car was on the edge of imploding every time you turned it on oh. that's the way of the american male it is, you know. Do you do you? I remember what all my buddies drove when we were when we got our first cars. I, re, I remember what everybody had. <laughs> you know, they were they were they were all cars we wish we had now. They were just oh, old yeah. cars then, you know. They but they're classics now. Well, you've got like a collection going at your house. Well, it's you got to collect something. So what do you what do you have? You've got that Highlander Land Cruiser. It's a uh, all right, a sixty five Land Rover Series Two, which is an old. It's sort of uh, Britain's answer to the Jeep. Okay. Uh, And then the uh, a forty seven Willis, which is the predecessor to the uh, the Jeep. Uh, It's kind of an army, you know, World War Two army looking thing. And then the uh, 73 Toyota Land Cruiser it, uh, is actually a real, I mean, that one's actually a drivable car. The other ones go about 40 miles an hour. 
that's about 40 miles an hour downhill with the wind at my back yeah it's about top speed on those other ones well uh not to brag but i do have a beat up used sedan with a torn leather seat <laughs> <laughs> well your first your first car was was it uh, the uh the pickup truck so no, i had a, i had an old green jeep wrangler yes yes yeah no. that was your first everybody yeah yeah yeah, it was uh, without the hard top. It has soft. It, top. it was probably pretty similar in in performance to the antique cars that you have. I remember it, when it we didn't sold go over forty five without me risking my life. That that car had some problems. Mm-hmm. That car had some problems. I remember when I would drive it; it would just kind of shift around on you. Yeah, it just kind of always felt like the roads were icy, even if it yeah. was July. And yeah, the chassis time. would kind of shift around from the tires, it would seem. <laughs> would feel yeah. like it. It made it exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It was exciting. Well, speaking of cars, today we are talking to someone who knows uh, far more about cars than I do. We're talking to Joe Chura. Um, Joe Chura grew up in Southside Chicago. He's a young father. Um, assembly line worker and uh, in between building cars he he found time to study took five years to graduate college and then created a few companies and started his journey as an entrepreneur he created and founded dealer inspire inc and was their ceo until he sold that company to cars.com and now he is the chief innovation officer at cars.com um, since that shift in his life, Joe has focused a lot of his energy onto spreading a, a motivating message to other people about wellness, health, and um, living for something greater than themselves. So I hope that you learn a thing or two from our conversation with Joe. I know that I had a great time. Um, my name is Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. <laughs> Hey, hey what's going on, guys? Hey, Joe. Thank you for being here. So, do you think... how Can you help me sell my car? <laughs> <laughs> I heard you're the guy. Uh, possibly. I can provide great outlets for you to sell your car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all, all I hear is that uh, right now the used car market's insane and that you'd be best to walk to work every day and pocket all the money from selling your you used know, car. Yeah, the beauty about this space is it changes very quickly and it's changing right now. So it's the market shifting. Um, wholesale has uh, wholesales um, part of the business that's a good indicator on what's happening. And that lags behind about 60 days retail. So what we're seeing is the market completely is flipping that the, the used car valuations are going down. So I guess the short way of saying this is if you hold off a little bit longer, I think you'll be in good shape. Okay. Nice. So sell it now and then buy a new car yeah, two months exactly. from now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Perfect. Thank, thank you for the financial advice. <laughs> <time. laughs> so I, so I am, I am really interested in that. So you, you had dealer inspired, sold that to cars.com, uh, back, what is it? Four years ago or so? Four years ago to this day. It's our anniversary. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is to, really just talk with people from a lot of different walks of life, interesting people that have made challenging decisions and really pull that collective wisdom in to help with people with their decision-making. And so I'm, I'm sure there were decisions you had to make in 
selling that business, what were the what were the most challenging decisions you had to make when you were selling to cars.com? Because that was that was a pretty big transaction, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, it was a tough decision. But the reality of it was the business was growing and I had bootstrapped the business. Primarily, we had one investor that gave us a convertible, uh, a convertible loan, essentially. And it was it was fairly nominal is right when we first started in 2013. And at the time, I had three employees. And, uh, and that business was was growing, but it was it was one of those that we needed to sustain the cash flow. I didn't really want to get other investors, and it and one of the things that isn't obvious is is when you're growing a, a business, like cash flow is super important. And and I mean not obvious because when someone sees a business growing, like they automatically assume, oh, the business is doing well. They don't need investment, or you know things like that. But it's it was quite the opposite for us where. Um, we were able to to run it very effectively, never really took out any debt. But then in 2016-ish, our clientele started to change from retail to enterprise, meaning we were working direct deals with OEMs and, and our client base was, was shifting. Then our, uh, our economics shifted as well. So whereas that was a great thing for, for, for the business, cash was delayed, bigger deals on the, the table, of course, and... Um, a lot of a lot of things were 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 happening. So um, I decided at, at that point in time, like you know, I could do one of two things. I could I could um, try to get an investment and investment, or I can um, explore options for for a partnership or sale. So how do you go about that? When I mean, walk walk us through because not everyone's taken a a company from the ground floor to sold by a major corporation, there's got to be a lot of decisions that go into that process to determine, number one, that that's even the route that you're wanting to to take that company. Yeah. So I, th- I think for me, it was, um, it, it really was uh, playing things out. So I, I could have done two things. One, I could have um, got an investment from a, a VC or PE. I had probably 50 or 60 people that were soliciting us to, to try and to try and see if there was something there or um, or I could have looked to sell to a strategic partner like uh, what happened with cars.com it happened very organically at, at the time to be honest with you I didn't know what was the best choice but w- what happened was um, in parallel I was I was trying to understand the value the value of our company and I looked at my peer set and I looked at others in the market and I could I could guess it. But at the same time, I wasn't I wasn't 100 percent. So I went to an investment banker. They were performing this valuation. And at the same time, uh, Cars.com reached out because we were we were ranked on certain lists like Cranes Fast 50 is, is a Chicago based list. And we were we were number five in the fastest growing companies and not to complicate matters, but I had created two companies. And the company that was on the list wasn't even the company we're talking about. It was launch launch digital marketing just the first company I created. So when cars ended up buying both companies, they actually, well, cars ended up buying both companies and not one. But essentially what it came down to for me was I needed to, um, I, I really needed to do something. I couldn't, I couldn't cash flow myself, any payroll, um, anything that, that was happening, meaning I was able to cash flow within the business. But if something were, were to happen, like if I was, if an, if an enterprise client didn't pay us or, 
if um, bills came up, which they often did, that were the business was growing at such a rate that I really needed um, a source of additional capital. And that source can only come in a few different ways. So, so that's essentially what happened. Yeah. So de- dealing with, it sounds like you guys had really tight cash flow, and that was kind of the only option that you had to to get that funding. I, I get, I I can empathize with what you're saying. When when businesses are growing, I think from the outside looking in, it's really easy to say, oh, they've everything's working well. They've got all the money that they need. Um, th- what problems could you have when you've got 200 percent growth? Yeah. And it, it- yeah, and I mean to put in perspective, in 2013 we we lost three hundred thousand um, dollars, and in 2017 we were ranked in the number 37 of the fastest growing companies in America. We were, you know, and when we sold, we were, you know, roughly around uh, 25 million dollar plus and uh, annual SaaS company with you know growing at at multiples on a yearly basis. Um, so it was, it was a lot really quickly. And, uh, and our peer set, there wasn't really anyone to follow because most of our peers had, had been in doing what we've done for, for a decade plus. So how did, how did you decide that cars.com was the, the right partner for that uh, transaction? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, uh, a few things happened. One of which was there wasn't, the strategic alternatives at the time to me were ones in which I really needed to look past the deal itself and say, is this sustainable for our business and our business model? And a few things surfaced that I thought would be really important, one of which was audience. So if you guys are familiar with the tech space, a lot of privacy has come out with browsers and how the exchange information on people and whatnot. And a, and a some of our revenue was driven from from ad tech and from uh, from uh, marketing and advertising. So what what I saw as writing on the wall was the first party audience data, and and Cars.com had significant first party audience data. They had been in the in the business for twenty plus years, curating, collecting from editorial to the amount of vehicles that they have on their website to everything. They were getting about twenty six million unique visitors on a monthly basis. So when I looked about uh, at future proofing our business and our software and what we were doing for our clients and how it could benefit our clients the best, cars.com was, was uh, an obvious choice for that matter. The, the second thing that I looked at is, you know, is there a right culture fit? They happened to be in Chicago, which, which was like 35 miles from our office. So, so that, was, that was number two. And then, and then three was, you know, are they going to let us continue to run our business? Now, a lot of people say they will, but, uh, but uh, many times that doesn't happen. And I knew that if I would have chose the kind of PE or VC route, it would be a, how fast can we grow within five years and try and sell off the business? At least that was my, my perception at the time. And cars.com would allow us um, the ability to do more synergistic product development with their platform, use their audience and, and, and really do, do a lot more than we could otherwise on our own. The VC route or the the private equity route has they have got a lot less incentive to be patient with you. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it wasn't you know I was confident in in the business, but at the same time, um, and you know part of this was was also I've I've seen uh, like the one investor we had was a was a fantastic and fantastic person, great friend. But what what I was looking for is like who can add value, who can add fuel to this fire, versus like who's just going to give us a check because I knew that. 
in the right hands and with the right alignment, it could be a lot more than than it is. And I was right because you know four years later, we've since quadrupled the the business. Uh, Dior Inspire is over eight hundred employees. We are certified with almost every single automobile manufacturer in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, there's there's a few um, a, a few or not, but but um, you know I mean for the most part, it's the the partnership has paid its dividends and it's accomplished uh, almost exactly what I thought it would. So you're, you're still involved with the day-to-day? Uh, I am not really involved in the day-to-day. I was CEO up until this year and I recently took a position as the chief innovation officer for cars. So whereas I had really 800 people under my organization just a couple months ago, now I have mm-hmm. zero and I get to focus on innovation, but I also get to focus on um, other passion projects outside of automotive. Um, I'm creating a few other companies right now, and it's it's been a lot of fun to recreate what worked for uh, Dealer Inspire back then. So what, what do you do as the chief innovation person? That, that sounds like a fun job. That sounds like a job I want, you know, chief innovation. Yeah. That's... Well, we're figuring it out right now, honestly. But one of the one of the things that I'm I'm focused on is uh, acquisitions. Is M and A. We we've acquired two companies in the last four months that that I've been working on for the last year. Um, I'm focused on what's the future look like for cars and our ecosystem and our clients. How do we help our clients the best with the with uh, the products and services that that we offer? Essentially, like it's my job to think beyond the day-to-day, beyond the next six months, and really think about how to make uh, make cars a, a long-standing brand in our space, which we have all the tools and we have all the uh, the assets to make that a reality. But it's it's really cool to have the the manpower and the brain power to, to focus on that as a business. How much time do you spend on that versus the other stuff you're doing? Um, I would say a good part of my day is still focused on it. And part of it is we're trying to figure out the right rhythm and the right cadence of things. And, and of course, I, can't, I couldn't shut off everything I was doing overnight. But it's, you know, one of the greatest gifts, too, I, I, I have to say, is, is looking back. Um, and one of the big takeaways, hopefully, from this conversation is successes to me was it, initially it was about building a business and and uh, having employees and and having that business grow. And then it re- really became to me uh, a shift of like, can this business grow without me? And initially as a CEO and a founder of a company, it's all, all about you, right? It's all about your ego. You have to be in meetings. You have to be the product guy. And then I was like, you know what? That's just not a good definition of something that I want. So I really shifted my focus to, I need to build a team to survive as if I'm not there. And, and that's what really what I wanted to focus on. So I guess that's my way of saying that the business right now without me is thriving and it's, and it's not, it, well, it's not only surviving, it's thriving. It's, it's doing really well. And, and to look at the, you know, the 800 people in my organization and the, the leaders that worked under me and to see them step up is, is just probably the greatest honor of, of anything that, that I've had in the past several years since the acquisition. It, it, I could be completely wrong on this because obviously I've not built a business to the point where I'm able to step away and have it completely run itself. But it seems like that's a natural progression of the highly motivated, highly ambitious entrepreneur to to want to make it all about you and then realize, wait, the, the next level is after this. Like, 
you know, I, I grew up seeing Sean get to a place where he was able to take the entire summer off from work. And that was a big monumental stage to say, hey, if I can take three months off consecutively and not check my email, obviously this is a business that's at least at least doing a decent job of running in my absence. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart. And and I know business owners to this day that they feel like they can't take, you know, a, a two-hour oh, lunch break yeah. without having things fall apart. Yeah, no, it's it's so right on. And Sean, I commend you for doing that and, and leading by example there because the definite definition of uh of this changes over time right and it's it's of your perception and you know when you're young and you're hungry again it's just about like hey can i even create a company can i get revenue can i get employees and then once that starts growing it's just like this miles this the measurement of of this changes over time significantly yeah i think you go from you know when you first start out and, and i think when you first start out a lot of the businesses are about you Right, because it's just you working it, or just one or two people, and and you you get through this survival phase. You know, are we going to make it? Can I make payroll? Am I going to? Is this going to really be working? And then you get to this sort of maintenance part where you're like, okay, I think I can make it. I think you know we're we're going to be okay. And then you you sort of move up and say, all right, this can actually be really successful. And then from there you get to sort of that enduring business that you talked about, about something that lasts be, beyond you. And it's sort of that moving to significance part of the, part of the wealth. Did you, did you find that transition as you, as you kind of move through business? Um, yeah, I, th I think it was, it was one of these where I thought success was, was way different. Like initially I thought, I thought I would look at myself and say, and put a stamp on on myself like once i sold the business i mean we we were we were this i think the first or second largest tech tech transaction in 2018 so i looked at that i was like wow i built these companies from nothing and created this and and after the transaction um really quickly like that feeling waned off and then my my transition became okay how do i be the what i consider the the anomaly in our in our space and stick with this and and make this company um again thrive not only survive but thrive um for for the coming years and i'm proud to say that i you know i stuck by that decision and i i i stood by to really try to build up our team and uh, and that that transition is it's it's interesting because you have to put your ego aside on things for sure and you have to establish patience and, and be more presence. And you have to be, uh, you have to develop different skills. You know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're going at it, like, like you can just be a bull, a bulldog and you can make things happen. Well, when you're a leader leading a large team, you just, you, you can't operate the same way. So it was, it's definitely one of the most challenging things, but it was probably the most rewarding. Like I said, watching other people grow their careers. It seems like the natural, um, not not natural, natural is the wrong word, but a a common outcome for people who have attained a level of significance or, or a level of success and realize that success at that point is no longer defined by what it was when they started. You know, I, I read on your website the story of, of you running that marathon, seeing the sign yeah. says, not there, right? Or I'm, I'm butchering the yeah. language, so not almost there, there. Yeah. right? So um, that's a that's a I feel like a lot of people who have achieved something significant get to the top of the mountain and go, eh, whatever. It wasn't that it wasn't that cool. And people can do that 
whether they've they've sold um, a large company or or you know finished you know climbed Mount Everest or they just retired a, a simple normal average American life and and they got to sixty five and said okay I'm done working either way we all have that mountain and a lot of people can get to the end of it and go oh man there's this wasn't nearly as fulfilling as I thought and what at least what I think is that next step of realizing what success could be is to change our thinking from, from seeking success and, and, and shift that to seeking significance. And the only way to really achieve significance is to do something for others, whether that's the people we're responsible for leading, our employees, our, our family, our children, our community. And, and the good news, I guess, is that there's so much more to do for others than there, we ever could do for ourselves. Yeah, that's. I think that's absolutely true, and that's the key to all of this, right? To the key to life, and and you guys are figuring this out. And Sean, I'm sure you have you have experience with this, but it's it's you know when you you can give to other people, you get so much more in in a return, and and that could be a career, that could be giving as far as just helping others that that are in need. And I spend a lot of my time doing that and thinking about that. Because, uh, you know, one one thing is not only can you make an impact on someone's life, but it also gives your, yourself a different sense of purpose. You know, I, I, I think you're exactly right. The uh, I have found when I when I sold my business and it, was, it wasn't near what you did, uh, but I, I sold my business a few years ago. And, you know, as a financial advisor, I'd seen a lot of people go from working to not working sort of. Uh, but in many cases, they didn't have something that they were retiring to and they hadn't figured that out yet. They just knew that they wanted to leave something behind and they didn't have that next goal. They didn't have that next Mount Everest that they were going to climb like you were talking about Sanger. And so what happened was they ended up sort of reverting back to where they were. You know, I talked to them six, nine months later and they're doing contract work for the company they retired from that they couldn't wait to leave, you know, two years ago. And so I think it's super important to figure out what is that next thing that you're wanting to accomplish? You know, what is that next thing that you're wanting to do? Yeah. And and I I think you, you can only move to significance when you're giving things away. You know, I mean, you can have a lot of wealth, but it's never going to be significant if you're not uh, making philanthropic uh, contributions, you know, your talents are not going to become significant unless you're demonstrating them. You know, your time's not significant unless you're giving to people that you, that you care about or need, need your assistance. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right on. And, you know, one of the scariest things that you think about is, okay, well, what if I just stepped away from this, these companies that you've built, it's hard for others to imagine, but when you, you've created something, you've interviewed, you know, your first 150 employees, you've, built out the offices literally like with your own hands and then that company grows and you sell it. Um, it's, it's just this weird feeling. It's just like, um, you know, like technically you don't own it, but I, I was, I would, I wanted to, and at cars.com did, did a great job making me feel like I still had ownership and, and I had decision-making power and I had all that, but the, the, the thought at that point in time of just like walking away from everything was just really tough, especially since I'd been in the, industry that I'm in for the, for the last couple of decades. So one of the things that I wanted to do and what I've learned from others is just start something, start creating your own luck by doing something else that interests you and see where that goes. And that led me to what's going to be my next venture, 
But that led me to create the Anonymous There podcast. That led me there, there from that podcast to then think about, okay, what is it that, that I, I want to do to then take everything I've learned and apply it to a new industry and a new business. You talk about the second chapter in your life. What do you think was the biggest or most important decision in identifying that second chapter? Because you could have done anything, right? You sell a company, um, especially getting the you know, the amount of the size of check you got, you could have done anything, right? Uh, and a lot of people, um, not entrepreneurs who sell their business, but you know, I think a lot of people when they think about reaching that end of the mountain, there's a lot of uh, there could be a lot of bad decisions that are made. But what do you think was the most impactful decision or important decision that you had to make in order to make that a worthwhile transitionary period? Yeah, so it, so it kind of goes back to what I said a minute ago is by starting something new and, and really diving in, into um, just, just creating. So just to back up a second there, I created this event called Refuel, which, which was made for my employees in 2017 and has since grown. And we have it every year and we have great speakers on like Jocko Wilnick and David Goggins and these motivational speakers. It has nothing to do with our, uh, our space at all, meaning it's nothing to do with automotive whatsoever. It has a lot to do with just motivation and, and people to get influence and get passion from other, other folks that have done amazing things in their, uh, in their lives. So, um, so I, I would have this, this event on a yearly basis, but what happened was the event would end and then for the next year, nothing would happen. So I decided to create this podcast called Not Almost There, as you mentioned earlier. That was that decision to do that was really scary because um, you guys are, are great hosts. You ask great questions, right? But it's an art and you've learned a lot over time, I'm sure. And to jump in there and, and to create a podcast to me was just a, just a thing that I was uneasy about. And um, by doing that, that led me to realize that my passion was really in health and wellness and understanding mental mindset. And, and that then there led me to think about what my next venture is, which is to create a non-alcoholic brewery, which piggybacks on the health and wellness and mindset of everything to give people an outlet to go and enjoy, but not have a sacrifice of, of uh, or not sacrificing their weekends or having alcohol or being hungover and allowing them to have a social experience that that doesn't compromise all those other things that alcohol can do. Oh man. So is it, have you started that yet or no? Yeah, it's called Go Brewing. It opens in, in uh, July in, in the Naperville area. We're one of the, we're the first non-alcoholic tap room in Illinois among the first in the nation. That's just going to be dedicated to non-alcoholic beer. We're going to have events there and, and then it's going to go from there to regional and then direct to consumer, hopefully by the end of this year. Oh man, I'm getting on the mailing list. I, I stopped drinking a, a couple of years ago and I think maybe I've had um, like two glasses of wine since then and a sip of beer, but it, it was it, it was kind of the, the same type of decision, I guess, that you're describing is I just realized this isn't really that healthy and I don't really enjoy it that much anyway, but man, beer tastes so yeah. good and non-alcoholic beer tastes awesome. I used to make fun of people for drinking like Oduls, right? Why would you drink that? <laughs> and now, give me like a non-alcoholic IPA. Oh, that's a great beer. Yeah, right no, there. totally. Do you, do you drink? Do you drink a non-alcoholic beer, singer? 
when you can Where find you it, find you can't it. find it's, it. Anywhere. I think this is a niche because I I don't see it other than Oduls. I don't see it on tap anywhere like you're talking well, about. It's, it's not really on even Oduls. It's not really on tap. So like to have a tap room in itself is again like there's a few out there, um, but they're not they're not popular yet. Um, but I do believe that this is a trend that people are finding that alcohol is poison essentially and. And that's, I'm not, I'm not teetotaling. I still drink and I, and I love, I love draft beer, but at the same time, I, I realized that you can't do that a lot anymore, especially as you age, you know, and it's just, it's just not. Well, yeah. socially, socially, it's so hard to not drink too, because so many, everybody else, when you're drinking, wants you to drink with them, right? No, nobody, if you, if, if you're just sitting there, Joe, with a glass of water and all your buddies have yeah. beer. The most of the time, ah, oh, come on, man, come on, and and they're not even trying to be, you know, it, it's not the malicious peer pressure that your mom warned you about when you were fourteen. <laughs> it's just it's friendly. They just want you to let loose and have a good time. And I think when people see that you're not drinking, they think that means that you're not having fun. And so I I started to like disguise my drinks so that it looked like I was drinking. So I'd get like tonic water with a lime in it in like a yeah. small glass. It looks like a vodka soda, but it's just Topo yeah. Chico. And as soon as I started doing that, people would leave me alone. Or if I could get like a non-alcoholic beer, it's like nobody, I, you know. I have done that. I, I have, uh, I've gotten iced tea in a highball glass just so people leave me alone sometimes. And I, cause I, I've had that same experience and shots are the worst. Guys that do shots are the worst. They want, they, you have to participate. Yeah. It's a communal thing. Of friends like that but but like an example you're you're talking about here is like i went out to dinner with my wife and you know we're looking forward to this dinner it's saturday night and we make the reservations for 5 30 and get a babysitter and the babysitter gets her at five you know and and at 6 45 we're staring at each other and we're like what do you want to do now dinner's over the babysitter doesn't go on to come back if i pay her for two hours so we got to go somewhere and where's 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 there to go you know like there's I guess we could go bowling or, you know, do something like that, but there's not a lot of options. So it all, and most of the options revolve around alcohol consumption. So we're like, man, just imagine yeah. if you had this non-alcoholic brewery with events there, like music and everything like that, um, that, that you don't compromise. I love that idea so much. I, cause, cause I think people kind of start to, because of the, entanglement of alcohol with the normal American social life. There's a lot of activities that we perceive to be revolving around drinking, but don't have to be revolving around drinking. Like, you know, playing yard games, playing cornhole. I was sitting out, um, not drinking, eating at a barbecue restaurant. They had damn professional cornhole on the TV. <laughs> But that, that was seems a like a, like an activity that you wouldn't do unless you were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's so right on. But I mean, you know, and the, the reality is now with with uh, cannabis becoming legalized, people are finding other ways to to get their buzz on. They don't want to do that, and then also have alcohol. And in, in many ways, alcohol is worse for you. I, you don't have the kind of side effects the next day. So I hear of uh, of cannabis consumption. But I mean. Kind of going back to what what you talked about, and I think what people get fearful of of starting something, and by me starting that podcast, it created a path to figure out, okay, what's this next thing? Because I had an event from the podcast called Go, and then I'm like, I was I didn't want to have alcohol at this event, so I reached out to some non-alcoholic beer providers. They gave me some beer. I was handing out the beer, and I'm like, 
why don't I brew my own beer? Um, and then that started this idea that became a reality. That's cool. Yeah, I like yeah, that. that. That's really exciting. Are you, are you still running? Yeah. You still doing marathons? I did a Spartan Ultra in September, and now I'm training for a jiu-jitsu tournament. So I try and do like two big physical athletic goals a year. And I think last year was doing a Spartan Ultra race, which was 31 miles in the Tahoe Mountains. And it was pretty difficult. Um, but I, I, I have I did I did an ultra a few years ago and, and uh, swore I would never do it again. <laughs> that was my learning. Well, the, the good thing about ultras is you don't need to be super fast. So well, I, not, and I clearly I wasn't yeah. nailed that part of it. Where where do you who do you train jujitsu under? Uh, under Damian Maya? Yeah. Oh no way! Yeah, that's exciting. Um, I train in, in Fort Worth under Travis oh, Luter. So are you doing like an IBJJF yeah, in Chicago yeah, in, or? Uh, in May? actually. So that's my, my goal is to, and, and when I initially did this in my mind, I was like, I just want to be able to enter a tournament. And then I'm like, what kind of goal is that? Like, I'm going to win the tournament. So it shifted yeah. to, to now training like, like five, six days a week. Like sometimes I go twice a day and really make that a priority, you know, to accomplish things in your life, you have to make daily decisions about how you want to prioritize your time. That's the number one bit of advice I'll yes. give anyone. And and if you want it, if, and there's no such thing as I don't have time, it just means you didn't prioritize it the, the way uh, you know, that was meaningful to you because we all have time. It's just a matter of like, what's important to us. Yeah. The, the, I don't have time or I didn't have time excuses is uh, highly frustrating. I try to not say yeah. that when people ask me, Oh, why didn't you come to the party or why don't you come, you know, to running club or whatever. I really try to not say I don't have time. Oh, that's an easy, like, non-thoughtful response. The reality is I didn't go because I am focused on the company. Or I didn't go to that family dinner because I'm, I'm training for this jiu-jitsu yeah. tournament or whatever it is. And and be precise with our language, I think, is really important. I took the, the words, like, I'm busy out of my vocabulary and started changing it to, uh, it's been really active lately because... Who doesn't say that they're busy when you talk to someone, right? Like, that's the thing. It's like, I just don't say it anymore. Yeah. I, I, I don't say Sean that either. Started I, I, I started noticing that a lot of, that it's sort of a lazy response that people say, you know, hey, how you doing? Oh, just, you know, you're busy, busy at work, busy, you know, busy. Yeah, I don't, man, I don't want to be busy. I don't know if some people just define their success by being busy, but I want to be purposeful. But you sound weird if you say that. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very purposeful. I'm not going to say it, but I <laughs> Just try not to say I'm busy. Yeah, you started saying, I heard you say a couple of times, oh, it's it's been really productive. I have said lately. that, yeah, I do say that. And I, I like that one. I try to think of that, <laughs> you know. If I'm a, if I'm inclined to say I'm busy right mm -hmm. now, am maybe I am busy. Maybe I am just filling my day with nothing uh, to, to kind of fill the void. But if I can look back on each day or week or month and say, yeah, it was a really productive time. Even if I worked a lot, that feels good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes you think about what what your what your intention is by saying that. It makes you think about your day, even like if you say you're busy, you're like, yeah, what what did I do today? When when you looked at your transition from business, you know, owner to going to where you are now, where you're you're doing a lot of different things and no longer the primary owner, what would you say was the the most difficult decision you had to make? I think letting go, letting go to the fact that like I wasn't, um, I didn't have to be the guy anymore. And in some ways, you know, when you're the CEO of a company that's growing, you're always, your name is always in the spotlights, especially in the uh, industry news, industry publications, 
whatnot. And what happens is when you're not in the spotlight, you, you start to, you know, your, your ego doesn't get filled as much. And I had to be okay with that because I, I was normally like the guy that's doing stuff. Now I'm not this, I'm the CEO of, of my company, but there's a great, there's a CEO of the parent company. And like, and I, I also had to be okay with like, I didn't have, although I had some control, I didn't have all the control anymore to, to do really anything I wanted to hire as fast as I wanted. There was processes in place and I had to be okay with that. You know, you could fight it or, or you can say, okay, how do I learn from this new process? And it was tough. I mean, it, it is tough, especially when you're used to doing things. I think that's why a lot of folks, um, once they get acquired or, you know, have a big event, they end up doing something else and moving on. But I, I also had to be okay with like, okay, what's my passion? Is my passion being a CEO of an 800 person company or is it starting something from scratch from an idea? And, and I'll tell you, like, I'm just more drawn to that, like, like starting an idea from scratch, building something from nothing seeing that to fruition and, and seeing how it goes, um, and, and learning and just, and, but this time I'm trying to be very intentional about being present and not being stressed out about everything before it was like stress everywhere, stress and cash flow, stress on build out, stress on, uh, employees, stress on clients. Now I'm just like, okay, like this is, I just have to understand that this is part of the journey and I, and this is a cool thing we're creating here. And why am I letting this be a stressful? situation yeah that's a daily decision it seems like a daily decision to let go and also a daily decision to to not be stressed out yeah yeah it's, i mean do you do you meditate do you what do you do to kind of so i start my day off by working out so i work out with my wife at 5 30 a.m and that's something i do five days a week with her and um that starts the day off playing offense what i like to call it so you're not you don't just wake up or all out of bed and you're just answering emails and you know, you're playing offense, you're controlling your day. You're not letting your day control you. So that, that to me is hugely important. Uh, secondly, when, when you do have things that pop up and I am far from perfect here, but I've gotten way better. I'd take a, a breath. <laughs> and if it's something I have to react to immediately, I I'll, I'll pause for a second. I'll think about it before it would just be a reaction in any case where I can. If it's a, something that that I am either unhappy about or I have to I have to um, provide something I'll get in a confrontation in um, that that's adversarial in, in any way I'll I'll give it I'll give it a day and I'll sleep on it and usually things happen during that time period and that next conversation isn't nearly as bad um, so that did you did you find that you were fairly confrontational when you were in that high stress environment? I think I was very reactionary. I was very like, um, uh, I would, I would, it was always like, like ready, fire, aim. Um, and I'd figure it out, ready, fire, aim, figure it out. As long as I was going in the direct, the general direction, I was okay with that, but that caused more stress that caused more issues than it, than it, it, it needed to. Um, and I've matured there over time. Uh, again, it's like, you know, things happen. And if it's, if, uh, if something happens today, like I, I try to do, I try to implement everything and going back to meditation, I try to meditate on a daily basis as well. I've been this for a few minutes, um, to try and just really be present. And that that's been important as well. We were talking we were talking, <laughs> like we, we had a shyly bassinet on the, on the podcast a few weeks ago. She climbed Mount Everest. She led the first, um, all woman team of climbers to, to climb 
Mount Everest. Anyway, we were talking about meditating and Sean, Sean was advocating against it. Is that right? He was saying it's stupid and pointless. (laughs) I just had a lot of questions about it. She, you know, she's Buddhist and she was really good at meditating and getting to that spiritual space. And one of the things that I've noticed is that people who are highly successful tend to have a, a morning ritual. I don't know why that is, but I, it's a, it's probably more common in highly successful individuals than it is in people who, who aren't. And it's, it's something that I've, I've grown to love. And the first few years of growing the business, I was 250 pounds. I had eczema, just like didn't care about anything except growing the business. I wasn't present with my family. And then when I realized that I was being a horrible role model, I started, you know, I had a gym in my basement that I never even used. And then the, I found, I found my friction point. I solved for that. And, and that allowed us to create a routine that we've stuck with for the last five years. And it's been, it's been life-changing to be able to, to do that in the morning. Um, because that leads to other things. And then now it's like, if I don't work out twice a day, I feel guilty. I know that sounds crazy, but like, yeah, the, and these aren't, it doesn't have to be like an intense hard workout, but just being active, especially if you're behind your computer all day long. You know, I, I, I really like, if I'm not doing that at least twice a day, then, then I'm feeling like there's something missing. And I think it's really easy with our modern lifestyles to, to justify, uh, not being healthy. It's so, and it's so easy to not be healthy. It's so easy to just roll out of bed and immediately I can work with my head still on my pillow. I can be answering emails, whatever it is, right from our phone. You can drive through McDonald's, takes no effort, and it's not that expensive. Everything that's that's unhealthy is easy, comfortable, and cheap. Yeah, and the you know one thing uh, I don't know if you guys listen to Jim Quick at all. Um, he was just a guest at my last Refuel conference, but he has a great book. Uh, out and she's a great podcaster and someone you guys should know if 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 you don't but one of the things she says is you know the harder you work now the easier life will become the easier you make life now the harder life becomes and if you just think about that it makes a lot of sense right like what happens if if we do make those decisions on a daily basis to be lazy well over time it catches up to you and and one of the one of the lessons that i've learned over time is there's this lagging effect in everything that you do from not hiring the person today that you should hire to, to, to not doing the right thing in business, the immediate effects aren't necessarily always there, but there's this lagging effect that'll happen. And it, and it changes depending on what it is. But if you make uh, a decision today that I'm going to eat like crap and I'm going to drink a bunch of beer and I make that decision all too often, well, in a few months from now, I'm going to be, I'm going to be overweight and I'm not going to be healthy. The inverse can happen though. If you make small decisions on a daily basis, and, uh, and you do those over time, and this doesn't mean you have to be perfect, think, think of the 80-20 rule, then over time, you're, you're going to see that lagging effect go in the, in the positive direction. But the bottom line is you can't, you can't just like coast through life and then figure it out in your 60s. Like you need to start taking action now, otherwise it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, I, I think either yeah. you, you pay the price of uh, discipline or you pay the price of regret. So it's, it's one or the other. You're, you're paying a price either way. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, the podcast is great. I'm glad it's going well. The event that you put on, is that open to everybody or just cards.com yeah, people? No, it's, it's open to everyone. Um, we had about 5,000 viewers live uh, when it was on. You could find it on YouTube if you just Google Refuel 2021. Um, it's posted live. And that was a, 
blessing from COVID. I know COVID was really hard on a lot of us, but it made us rethink this event. And it was only a, a, an in-person event and we expanded it to stream it for free. And, uh, and again, you can find it there. Um, then not almost there's the podcast and obviously that's free and that's, that's everywhere. Uh, the podcasts are just like yours, just like ours. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate your time being with us. This is a, it's always fascinating talking to people who've been successful in the things that they're doing and, and, uh, more than that, people who have exciting things that they're planning to do and doing in the future. So you got a big future ahead of you, even, even with all the success. So thanks. It's, it's a, I'm a work in progress and, uh, I'll make sure to send you guys some beer when we have it cans and, and. And yes. Yes. Yeah. It's called it's called Go Brewing. You, you can find more info on GoBrewing.com. We're just uh, working on the website now and a bunch of things for it. But um, yeah, we're excited about it. My biggest takeaway from our conversation with Joe was that success is often poorly defined from the bottom of the mountain. And then once we reach the top of that mountain of what we define success as when we started our journey, it, it can typically be unfulfilling. And so finding ways to continue to strive for work, to continue to climb, to continue to grow requires a focus on significance. And, and I think we were able to more articulately define significance. And that's, that's really focused around being important to other people. Yeah, you know, mine were several. <laughs> you know, we had a really wide-ranging discussion with him, and I had a, had a few learnings from it. One was to, you know, as somebody who sold their business about the same time that I did, uh, he mentioned being comfortable not being the guy, uh, which I think is super important, but also figuring out what that next thing is. You know, what is it kind of what you were saying, figuring out, where is it that you're wanting to go from there? What are you trying to produce, create, distribute, give away? The, you know, where, how are you becoming significant and creating significance by giving value out? The other is the, uh, the daily decision on how to prioritize time. Just being, being conscious of the prioritization decision on, on time uh, and having an awareness that you are having to make decisions. And, and if you're not deciding to do anything, you're actually deciding to not do things, you know? And so it's, that was something that I, uh, I kind of took away. So those are my learnings. Thanks for listening to this episode of decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.